Welcome to episode seven of the Corporate Real Estate Insider. We are back with Owen Rice, John Jarvis, Brian Connolly. There has been a lot that has happened over the last two weeks since episode six. We're going to be talking about the banking crisis. We're also going to be talking about the most confusing and misunderstood parts of corporate real estate. John, I know you wanted to lead us off today, so take it away. Okay, here we go. Let's see if I can cover this um, in a succinct way. Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, what in the heck's happening? Um, so this is from an article in Fortune Magazine. This guy from Morgan Stanley, he's one of their top strategists, Michael Wilson. Um, and I quote from the article, it says, uh, the backstopping of bank deposits by the Fed and the FDIC represents the beginning of the end of the bear market as falling credit availability squeezes growth out of the economy. Okay, I think that is brilliant. Falling credit availability squeezes growth out of the economy. He also says, I think this is pretty, pretty sharp. Uh, this is exactly how bear markets end. An unforeseen catalyst that is obvious in hindsight forces market participants to acknowledge what has been right in front of them all the time. Um, okay, so if you think about it, you know, falling credit availability, squeezing growth out of the economy, that's kind of what the Fed was after all along with their increasing interest rates. They're trying to slow things down to avoid inflation. Um, so maybe the Fed went too far too fast, or maybe Silicon Valley Bank got caught with some exposure. And oh, by the way, both can be true. So I, I kind of want to use this as a launching point just to, the more I think about, thought about this and looked back, there's sort of a crazy cycle repeating itself. Pardon me with a long lens of history here, but 1929, Great Depression, right, leads to the Glass-Steagall Act in 1933, where they required banks to decide, are you a commercial bank taking depositor funds um, or are you an investment bank, you know, making investments, speculative investments? Um, and you got to choose because that Glass-Steagall Act created the FDIC, it created that deposit insurance. Um, and that worked great for 75 years um, until it was repealed in 1999 which allowed banks to start doing some crazy investing again, which here we go, 2008 financial crisis. Well, here we have another financial crisis. Let's have some more legislation. That's when Dodd-Frank came to be in 2010, um, which was then rolled back to some extent in 2018. Okay, so I just think it's really interesting to look at this, this lens through history where we've got these financial crises, we've got legislation to fix what was broken in the first place, and we seem to be repeating ourselves. Now, now, that being said, I don't believe that the rollback of the Dodd-Frank directly led to Silicon Valley Bank. I think Silicon Valley Bank um, did themselves in, you know, uh, by not hedging their book, by not having a risk officer. There's all sorts of things we can point to. But here's my point. Like, I, I think we want to bring back boring banks, especially if we're going to guarantee the deposits. And by the way, we're effectively guaranteeing the deposits in an unlimited way now. So it's like if, I, if you have a child who has a gambling addiction and they come to you and they want you to co-sign their home loan, they want you to backstop their debts. Well, okay, but only if you give up your gambling. I mean, I think we just need to rely on either the regulators to do their job or maybe there's additional regulation that needs to be required. We, if we're going to be guaranteeing bank deposits to an unlimited extent, I think we need to limit what the banks can do. And they, they need to be very, very boring with the risks that they're, they're taking. What do you think? I, I totally agree, John. Um, I think it's, uh, as we've discussed, I mean, I think it's funny that the people who cause these problems are now turning around and trying to be the heroes that are fixing them. 
So let's not forget how we got here. And you know, we had one, we spent one point nine trillion dollars in the American Rescue Plan during COVID. Um, then we came out and we had a Inflation Reduction Act that spent another seven hundred thirty-eight billion dollars towards you know green energy, um, among other things, which then caused inflation to peak at eight point five percent last summer um, while we were lending money at near zero. Um, and let's not forget, inflation still at six percent. Um, then come into last year, you know, the Fed, Fed says, oh, we're going to attack this war on inflation, you know, even though they're the ones that really, really caused it. And so, you know, the Fed then went on a, on a tear, raising interest rates from basically zero. Let's not forget they're at near zero to, you know, as much as four and three quarters um, uh, since January of 2022. So as everybody knows and all our listeners knows, this is what caught banks off guard. Um, holding portfolios of underwater bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Um, so then, you know, the Treasury comes to the rescue and says that we're going, you know, with the fallout of SVP, we're going to protect all depositors, which means all of those uh, not insured above $250,000. And I don't think a lot of people caught that. So we're basically protecting anyone, no matter what your balance might be. Um, and... Uh, for, for whatever losses you may have. And so those that helped cause inflation are now the ones that are becoming the heroes, so to speak, of saving the depositors who, you know, exceeded those FDIC limits. And so I think that this is a moral hazard that we have to self-correct somehow because there's really, what's the point in having a chief risk officer if the Fed's just going to bail everybody out? Um, the only thing this guarantees in this behavior is more bank bail, more future uh, bailouts. And now we're about to raise interest rates yet another quarter point. By the time this podcast airs, it may have already happened. Um, and we're going to have a trail of failed banks in our wake. Um, so there has to be some sort of reform. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what that might be. But the fact that we didn't see this coming is, is somewhat silly, in my opinion. So let me just try to quickly tie this back to, to commercial real estate, where you know, this rising interest rates and falling credit availability is going to exacerbate what we've been talking about in our last several podcasts. These, um, you know, not good news for large office building owners looking to refinance upcoming debt. Okay, I have a, a couple of thoughts. First, this article has the worst title I've ever seen in my life, right? Bank failures mark the start of a vicious end to the bear market in U.S. stocks. That's, I bet half the people that read that headline say that this is going to cause enough economic turmoil that the Fed's going to lower rents and that stocks are actually going up, not down, right? It's like very nuanced, like the start of a vicious end, meaning that we're at the beginning of the end. We're in like the seventh inning and maybe it gets really dark by the ninth ending. Terrible article, uh, fortune should, uh, or article title fortune should make it more clear, uh, unless they're trying to, uh, you know, get stocks to go up or something and expecting nobody to read the, the actual article. But going back to this inflation topic, and then I want to tie this in on how it's going to uh, impact rental rates. There, There's really two outcomes here, right? Um, if the Fed lowers interest rates, then we're going to have very meaningful inflation, right? The alternative is that they continue to increase interest rates and banks fail, in which case the political pressures of making these depositors whole sort of creates two different pathways to having major inflation. Pathway one is you just lower rates and there's going to be major inflation. Pathway two 
is you um, you you essentially go to these these banks um, and you make all these uninsured depositors whole. And effectively, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, depositors, you all can have your hundred dollars that you've deposited with us back, but that hundred dollars is really going to feel like eighty dollars. Really, the only way to unwind this without having um, major inflationary impacts is to let these banks fail and to let depositors fail. And I'm not advocating that that's the right solution here. It's just that's really the only pathway. And given that no one believes the Fed is going to, or, you know, the U.S. Treasury is going to allow that to happen, um, it's reasonable to expect that we're going to see very wild inflation. I mean, this is fed between a rock and a hard place where both pathways suck and both pathways contribute to inflation. So I'm nervous about that. Um, it will be really interesting to see what happens with the pricing of uh, inflation hedged assets like gold or Bitcoin, commodities, things like that. Um, how this impacts rents, though, right? In the short term, and if you recall in episode two or three where we were talking about the industrial real estate market, I made a prediction that rents were going to be uh, increasing in the like low single digit percent on a real basis and probably much higher on a nominal basis accounting for inflation. And I would expect to see that just just similarly to having a ton of debt in an inflationary environment is very beneficial because the real value of that debt is decreasing because the dollar is being devalued. The same is true for having a long-term office lease or a warehouse lease. If you have a 10-year lease that is escalating at 3% per year, meanwhile, that obligation is being um, you know, hyperinflated away at you know 50% or something, then you're in a really good position. So it's important to keep that in mind that even though the office market is experiencing an enormous amount of pain, it is very likely that if inflation gets out of control or you know certainly goes over 10%, that that will offset all of the decreases in rents and that we'll see nominal pricing of these buildings increasing, but real pricing decreasing due to inflation. The other thing that I wanted to cover is that there are $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that expires in just the next three years alone. So you think about the impact of not only rates being significantly higher, where somebody bought a building with 50% loan to value. That was very conservative three years ago, five years ago. If you were, hey, our loan to value on our entire portfolio is 50%, you were perceived as, oh, like this is a this is a safe landlord. They're not, you know, private equity back trying to squeeze every dollar out of it. They're conservative. Well, guess what? 50% loan to value is probably now 75% loan to value. And banks don't want to refinance as 75% loan to value. So now you have to contribute more money. And now, given this liquidity crunch, it's going to be even harder for these folks to be able to refinance their buildings uh, or to sell because new buyers are going to be dealing with the same financing issues. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the Fed does and the impact not only on corporate real estate, but on so many other sectors of the economy are going to be really, really big. I, I couldn't agree more, Tucker, with uh, what you've said, other than I'd add a third scenario. I think, I think letting the banking system and letting these smaller mid-sized banks fail would create such a mass carnage across, you know, Middle America. I mean, the 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 fuel to small businesses is the community bank. You need access to credit. 
I think that Main Street versus Wall Street is is looking at this very differently. Main Street thinks this is a problem of, you know, the bankers themselves who have taken this mass amount, this these deposits and leveraged them in the marketplace and made risky bets and and put their deposits at risk. All that would do if if we let the banking system fail would be that there would be a run to the to the large banks and we'd be like the It'd be like the uh, accounting industry and you'd have like five or six banks left and then you'd have everybody else. And I think one thing you have to think about is that with Dodd-Frank and I think it was signed into law in you know, 2012, say the the cap by the FDIC on insurance for accounts went from 100000 to 250000 Now, that's a blanket cap across all types of accounts, right? It's the same cap for a payroll account of a company rolling payroll for hundreds of employees as it is for you and I putting our money in um, a savings account to pay our bills. So, you know, I think the government has an opportunity to start to uncouple those and look at it two different ways, right? You've got you've got Main Street, people who are using banking as a way to save money and pay for their families, and then you have everyone else, businesses, you have wealthy people that have that have different uses of the banking system. And I think those should be insured differently. And I think the government needs to look at it differently because it'd be catastrophic to have, uh, you know, small community banks fail. And this is what this, this, this is about. It's not about the big banks like we had 2008. This is about the community banks that all went public. It's, it's the local regional banks that support small businesses. And it's, it would really have an impact on our economy in a much different way than people are predicting if I think those those institutions were allowed to uh, allowed to fail. I agree. I think it's an unacceptable outcome for a large number of community and local banks to fail. It's just not an acceptable outcome that any stakeholder in the U.S. economy should be willing to accept. And based on that premise, there's really only two outcomes, both of which lead to major inflation. So we'll be very interesting to see what happens here. And Tucker, to your point about rents, what's the effect on rents? What I would say is this, if you're coming up on a lease renewal today, it's all about price discovery. Like lease comps, not a chance. There's no, there's nowhere to look to see, to find where rents should be. It's a process. We got to drive that process. Right now, it's all about price discovery. We're going to find out on each and every transaction exactly what fair rent is going to be. Yeah, if you think a two a two um, point move in cap rates for a building equates to somewhere between a twenty and twenty five percent reduction in value of the asset, right? So as rates are going up, these values are coming down. Real estate's a trailing indicator. A lot of the buildings are not required to be marked. So if you're a, you know if you're a security, you've got to be marked to market on a daily basis. These buildings, especially buildings that are in the private sector versus the public sector, like REITs, those buildings are not being marked to market on a um, on a routine basis. It could be 12, 24 months trailing. So I think one thing right now is is understanding landlords and their capital structure is going to be a great advantage for tenant brokers and tenants because there could be ways to keep landlords in the money and control an asset and get a below significantly below market rent uh, because cash today for tenants flows through their P&L one way and for landlords it's cash tomorrow that 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 creates asset value for them 
right? So if you have a, a, an opportunity to trade those different pieces of the puzzle, you could, you could create a structure that really um, is an advantage for an aten a tenant, but also keeps a landlord willing to step up and do a deal uh, versus let the building go back to the bank and, and let a new um, cast of characters um, uh, to the table. Little lease equity arbitrage. I love it. Yeah, that's exactly right. But just to change gears, unless anyone had anything else, I, another more of a, it's kind of a, a depressing but uh, interesting topic. I listened to a presentation around the future of cities, um, and it's an interesting conversation. It's this uh, academic named Richard Florida. He, he uh, calls himself a futurist. And, you know, he, he, his whole premise is around the untethering of, of people to the office. And, and he, he looked at, and this is something I've been talking about. He's looked at these major cities and where are all the people? They're in the neighborhoods. They're, if you take New York City, they're in the Bronx. They're in Brooklyn. Um, you know, they're, they're in the Upper West Side. They're up in the Upper East Side. They're not in the financial cores of these, of these cities. And that's the case for Boston. It's the case for Austin, if you go there. So what does that mean? It means that there's going to be his predictions are, and I'll leave this for the rest of you to think about. His prediction is, the downtowns need to become a neighborhood. They need to reinvent themselves. And what does that mean? A lot of these second-rate buildings that are there that won't, won't lease his office space either need to go away or they need to be repurposed. And he thinks a lot of them are going to go away. The retail is going to take – retail and all the service industries is going to take a major hit in the short term, but it has to reinvent itself as something else. And eventually, coming out of this – we're going to see the downtowns be no different than the neighborhoods of the of the surrounding urban center that they used to be. Brian, when he says that office buildings are going to go away, what does he mean by that? Like, are we just going to be demoing 50 story obsolete office buildings, pulling them down to a park, rebuilding them as an apartment building, but after ripping it down? Curious what he means by that. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he means. He means that if you have a building that doesn't have the floor plates to convert it to residential, to lab, to student housing, to, you know, he, 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 a big piece of what he was talking about was around bringing sports, culture, innovation, like labs and, and academic institutions back to the cores and have them repurpose buildings to, to make it from a central business district to a central connection district as part of a neighborhood and if the buildings don't fit those profiles they're going to sit vacant or they're going to get they're going to be banks are going to have to make tough decisions and take them down bring them back to the value of the land and sell it off to to repurpose it in a different use and until that until that realization happens it's going to be a lot of pain a pain and suffering for owners for cities that are going to have massive tax reductions but the urban core as a destination for people to go to work, he thinks is over. It's, and, and the other thing interesting is he, we've done this before. If you think about it, he said, look, at the, the, the cities used to be where products were made. The buildings that are now cool off buildings that are, that are residential or, or brick and beam office buildings used to be factories where people made things. They're not anymore. And that's the next evolution is what are we going to be next? I will. It's insightful. He's clearly a futurist, and I 
well, it remains to be seen as to whether or not that actually takes hold. But I just, I challenge his hypothesis with the fact that, you know, we, we went through this before when suburbia, you know, started to become uh, vogue as to where people would work and people would, you know, that's why we have all these suburban markets around major cities around the country. Um, but let's not forget the fact that there are cities that have vibrant downtowns that offer more to the average tenant and the average employee going to the office than that which they would have in suburbia. So um, it's not to say that there will be a transformation of downtowns across America. I think the transformation for those that are most at risk of transforming is are those that have lack of um, common amenities like safety, right, and, and good access to transportation. And I do believe there's, as we talked about it in one of our earlier podcasts, there are companies that are going to where the people are versus making everyone come into downtown. So I think there will be a continuum of that as well. But I do have clients, though, that you know, are evaluating downtown urban cores versus suburbia and choose downtown urban cores because of what it affords their people um, while they're at work during the day in terms of places to go eat, um, you know, cultural aspects and so forth. So there will be a transformation for sure. I think the cities that will be hardest hit are those that um, haven't invested or reinvested into their cities uh, during COVID. Well, here he builds himself as a futurist, and I suppose he is, but isn't it interesting? He isn't saying anything we haven't already said on this podcast with, you know, redesigning civic centers and this long-term shift that's happening. Also, by the way, decoupling work from the workplace. That's what he's saying. We've said it here previously. Uh, Here's what I would predict in the, in the, he's maybe, he's maybe predicting something that's going to happen over the next 50 years, but in the near term, a more likely result of all this is that the price of those buildings is going to come down. It's big. You're going to choose downtown. We've seen it happen in other markets already, where, like you said, there was a flight to the suburbs. Downtown Metro had to lower the price to become cost competitive to draw the companies back into that downtown market. So not good news if you're an owner of an urban um, office tower. But my prediction in the in the closer to near term would be that the market correction will take care of it. Prices will come down um, to the point where companies have to consider coming back down to the urban core. Something to consider about this idea of going back to the urban core is that in many cities like Los Angeles, for example, the cost to operate these high-rise towers that were built in the 70s and 80s is so high that it will be really hard for anyone to be cost competitive on these buildings relative to suburban buildings. I mean, there's some buildings in uh, downtown Los Angeles that just the cost to run them is $1.75 a square foot per month, right? So you start thinking about, okay... If you can be in a suburban building for two and a half or three bucks, including operating expenses, then that downtown asset really has to fall in value for them to be able to be cost competitive. So we'll see. Going back to this futurist, though, I sort of wonder whether that prediction is accurate, right? I agree. We need to make our urban core uh, more neighborhood-like. And if you look at the most vibrant urban areas in the country, they're all distinguished by having a, a strong neighborhood identity. Um, you know, you look at the, um, you know, areas of New York, like Manhattan that are thriving right now, and it's areas that have a very strong neighborhood uh, culture and community. That said, this idea of staying in the neighborhood to work implies that everyone that you work with also lives in that neighborhood, or you're going to be back in the office and you're going to be on Zoom with people that are going to a small office in their neighborhood. I just don't buy that you're going to see a company like Apple or someone say, hey, instead of having 
250,000 square feet in this market, we're going to have 25, 10,000 square foot offices all throughout the city. So all these different teams can go in and zoom with each other. Like, I just don't buy that. So of course, can the way people work change dramatically over a 50 year time horizon? Obviously. And he may be right, but I think I agree with John that in the short term, it's very unlikely that that's actually going to happen. And that's a good segue into something I was going to bring up earlier, which is um, we've been talking about in previous podcasts, return to work and what's going to propel that to happen, if anything, and, and who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers. And finally, we're starting to see the first hints of data around who are the winners and, and who are those that are not winning so much, dare I call them losers. Um, and it was a report published by Rebney, which is Real Estate Board of New York. It's a trade association um, in, for New York City, a real estate trade aso association, I should say. And what they did was they showed um, what percentage of uh, people are going back based on building class. And so looked at class A plus buildings, class A buildings, and class B buildings. And in New York, as many markets like San Francisco and others, um, we have very good data because in order to access the building, you have to go through a security turnstile so they can actually see the foot traffic of people actually coming to the building. And not surprisingly, um, class A plus buildings far outperformed class A and even further outperformed class B. And this data preliminarily suggests that that is going to be a big driver in those who have success bringing people back based on the quality of the building they're going to. And so specifically, on the high end, um, for those buildings in New York City that are considered class A plus, so premium, think of like the nicest buildings in the city, 66% occupancy for those people who lease space in the building. Um, class A, 59.9%. Class B, as low as 53%. So you're seeing a pretty, you know, a 13% spread between class A premium and class B. Um, of those who, again, lease office space in those buildings and what percentage of their staff are coming back to work on the aggregate. Um, I think the numbers that are even more extreme than that, that represent a wider range than 13% is what the uh, like amount leased these buildings are, right? Oftentimes, these buildings are significantly more leased. I mean, when I think about the markets that I work in, the class A plus buildings, you wouldn't even know that COVID had happened, that we're in a recession, I mean, many of these buildings, it's a stark contrast when you're negotiating with them where you're like, what world are you living on? You won't give me a expansion, right? Like, are you serious? Why? And then you remember, okay, these people are 98% leased. They feel confident that any future availability they have is going to be taken up by a new tenant that wants to move into the building. And in many cases, it's justified, but it's two very different markets, the A-plus market, which even in a, in a large, you know, in a city like New York, if you're really being disciplined around what is an A plus building, it's not like there's hundreds of them, right? We're talking about, you know, 20, 25 true A plus buildings in Los Angeles. It's, it's far less than that. And those buildings are, are doing extremely well generally. Yeah. And to give you a sense of enormity, like we talk about downtowns, um, you know, recovering from what we've been through over the past couple of years in New York alone, and this is, again, a statistic from the Real Estate Board of New York, a 10% increase in office occupancy, just 10% would result in an additional up to 200,000 people coming into the city downtown every single day to work. 
And they estimate that each employee coming into, the, into downtown Manhattan um, spends about $6,000 a year from everything from clothes to their chopped salad for lunch during the day. And so to think about the enormity of what a 10% increase in office occupancy means to a downtown, it's pretty remarkable um, when you think of each employee bringing in, call it $6,000 annually. Cut that in half, even if it's $3,000 annually. It's a huge shot in the arm um, for the and rec- part of the recovery if we're going to ever see one. Yeah, I, I, I guess I want to make the point that, you know, good, good real estate directors were were moving their companies and looking hard at new construction for a number of reasons before the pandemic. One, we really started to understand efficiencies of buildings, right? So a 100,000 feet in a building that's 10 years old versus a brand new building is very different because of the, the, the one technology, the design, how they're building space. So you're able to reduce your footprint, take a much nicer piece of space and maybe you're 70,000 feet versus 100 in, in your renewal or older building. So there was a there was a flight to quality beforehand, and you saw a lot of new buildings lease up faster anyway. Now it's funny, it's kind of turned and said, okay, yeah, we can be even more efficient because frequency of use is down, um, and we need to get more efficient in terms of people in the space. Um, but people are going there because they want to be in an environment that's exciting, that's that has connectivity, that has uh, that has just new. It has a vibe, and so it's really both pieces are coming together, and it's really it is really favoring. I remember Jeff Blau, I believe that's his name, Jeff, um, but the CEO of Related was talking about about um, their product in Hudson Yards in New York, and it was this was. Six months ago, and it was like twenty percent higher occupancy. I think they were they were tracking at around seventy percent when Manhattan was sitting, you know, at or below fifty percent on average. So, um, you're, the the data is there. New product will lease. Um, that the piece that that you have to remember about where the new product is, though, because safety is a real issue in cities, and it's not around actual data. If you look at data, 20 years ago, it was much more dangerous. 30 years ago, much more dangerous to go into an urban core. It's perception because it's more dangerous today than it was three three years ago and two years ago. And I don't think we're getting anybody back. Oh, and you've been beating the drum. But I started actually digging into this. Every, If you look at the data from every major city, for the most part, now take some out of it, but for the most part, they're more dangerous today than they were pre, pre-pandemic. And that perception is going to be sticky. And it's going to be hard to go away. Public, And then now you think about it, layer in all the buildings that create all the revenue for these cities is going down. So all the cities that have had these inflated budgets and all this money to work with are now going to have to cut essential services, potentially schools. So people are going to move out that have kids that are turning into school age. Police, fire, under attack anyway. Um, transportation. So it's to me, it's a very scary thought to think about where revenue is going for these, where occupancy going, because people create safety. And then on top of it, the perception is we're already not safe. And it's I think it's only going to get worse as revenue decreases for the cities and towns. I just want to say one thing about these class A plus office buildings, and it's that they are they're, they're, you know, there is a flight to quality. It's clear, um, it's evident. And these class A plus buildings aren't immune to price pressure. They are at a premium pricing a premium to the alternative. And as these alternatives fall in price, that premium spread is going to increase. 
that increasing premium spread is going to put some downward pressure on even the Class A plus buildings. They can't exist in a vacuum, so they're not they're not immune to the price pressure that's coming. Yeah, I mean that'll be interesting. That that whole asset class will be interesting because you have downward pricing pressure that's you know uh, getting dragged down by the market, but you have owners that built buildings, you know, and they're they're like everyone. They have debt that's rolling, <laughs> the cost of debt's going up. They may need to 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 finance additional costs to, because they have a lot of shelf space or they have uh, additional improvements to, for tenants, right? So their cost of capital is going up. The rents are getting pulled down. It'll be interesting because I think there's there could be some real pain in them meeting the market and coming with these buildings that may have traded before 2016 or something like that. It'll be interesting how that spread plays out and if they can actually do deals um, or if tenants will pay up for it. Right. So if if you can get really efficient and that the you know your cost in your P&L can be either improved or or flat, would you go and overpay because, you know, your people want to be in that building to, to close this out? I want to, one quick point on would a tenant pay to be in those buildings. And yes, I agree. There will be some compression on those class A premium buildings. They'll have to um, come down as the whole market comes down. But um, I was on a tour last week with a company who wants by and large people to come back more than they stay at home. And we looked at a bunch of buildings in downtown and we went to, you know, what a class A premium building like that, which we're talking about. And it was during the lunch hour. And this is a building that's, you know, one of the largest buildings in downtown and, and with lots of um, multi-tenanted floors. So lots of different companies, whereas like the building I work in, is predominantly leased by Zillow.com, who's subleasing all their space. So we're a pretty quiet building. There's not much going on here. So conversely, we're in this building that's you know heavily diversified at the lunch hour. And I'm not kidding you. I, you, If I had woken up from a, a, long, a long nap, I might have thought I was back in 2019. Um, it was buzzing. Every retail facility was open. Um, there were lines getting lunch. People were eating in the common areas. Um, it was, it was, I mean, I, to me, it was euphoric as someone who works downtown and has been, and remembers what it was like, um, before downtowns were gutted, it was pretty amazing. And so my point I'm trying to make here is that the tenant that I was touring was like, wow, this is cool. Like this is, this would help get people back versus with no disrespect, Owen, the building you lease space in, which is predominantly a ghost town because your biggest tenant is subleasing all their space that doesn't bring the excitement. Uh, whereas here, it just feels like that's what people do. We just go to work. Um, and so, yeah, I think there'll be, uh, I think, I do think tenants will pay up slightly uh, to be in a building that is heavily occupied and, and activated. Okay, we are going to be jumping into the main topic for uh, episode seven, the most confusing and misunderstood parts of uh, commercial real estate. If you are a very seasoned real estate director, uh, some of this stuff might be a little basic, but we've been receiving a number of requests to go over some terminology and some of the more basic stuff in our industry. That said, I bet if you do listen, you will probably learn uh, one or two new things, but uh, certainly no offense taken if you tune out now. Uh, with that, John, I know that you wanted to launch with a number of acronyms. Yeah, these damn acronyms. I mean, why do we do this? We try and make it seem like this industry is so complicated and confusing. Okay, so check this out. I just wrote down a few that came to mind. You know, triple net, NNN, CAM, USF, RSF, LOI, ROI, LTV, TIA, 
FF&E, Rofer and Rofo. I mean, come on. Yeah, no wonder it seems confusing. None of those are very complicated, but we'd like to make it look complicated by turning it into an acronym. Yeah, it's the same as talking to, you know, a banker or someone in finance. Um, and you're sometimes, if that's not your world, you're you're like, huh? I think the, the downside, too, is that for those that communicate using those acronyms, that um, whether it be that they're just used to it or they're trying to sound smart, you know, you wonder how many people don't speak up and are like, dude, speak my language. I don't I don't know what all those things mean. So start using English and set of acronyms and we'll be on the same wavelength. So it's incumbent upon us as advisors to, you know, speak clearly and articulate, articulately for what we're trying to get across. And I think I'm at all of us are to some degree guilty of using probably more acronyms than we should. But I agree, John, they're, they're silly and we should probably part with most of them, especially when talking to clients. I think the acronyms are a symptom of the majority of the corporate real estate industry revolving around landlords. And if you're an institutional asset manager, then it's very reasonable to expect that everyone you're talking to knows these things, right? You're talking to your peers, you're talking to your asset manager, your broker, uh, maybe your property manager, all things, uh, all people that are dealing with this asset class every single day. Whereas when you're talking to companies, particularly if they don't have a sophisticated director of real estate, maybe it's you know somebody that was on the internal operations team that just was handed real estate and has never done this before, they don't know those things, which is why I think you see occupier-focused brokers using acronyms a lot less, unless it's when uh, they're communicating with listing brokers or landlords. And even then, it's it's usually a means of showing you know what you're talking about, right? It's a it's a status signal of people trying to act like they're smart. Uh, and yeah, I agree. It's a little silly. I I just have to this. I didn't know acronyms was going to be the first one, but this, so this covers what, what I think is one of the most confusing parts of the business. Also one of the most frustrating acronyms in the business, and it's the BOMA standard. But, you know, you've got all these different BOMA standards for industrial, for office, then they update them. So you got the BOMA 21 that includes canopies and, you know, you've got all this additional space and, and for tenants, like how confusing is it is if your lease is lease is 100,000 feet and it's up for renewal and the landlord tries to tell you your space is 120,000 feet, right? It's like, what are you talking about? How, how can that be? And, and never mind now we're seeing in Boston, we're seeing the conversion from office to lab buildings. They may add 40, 40% to the square footage of the building when they convert it. I, they didn't add another floor. It's just a different standard of BOMA. So, you know, how do you get, how do you sift through it all? How do you understand it? Um, it's, it becomes really confusing and, and under having a good team that understands it. Uh, I, I've had the benefit of working with an A&E firm for many, many years that um, really got me to be, be much better than I should be at understanding the standards. And, um, but a lot of brokers and a lot of people don't understand it. Well, let's, um, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Uh, we have one of our colleagues, David Marino, uh, loves to say there's no T in BOMA. Um, and let's, for those of our listeners, you know, BOMA stands for Building Owners and Managers Association. And on their website, they say it loud and clear that their advocacy team is hard at work continuing to positively impact or hard at work continuing to positively impact the commercial real estate industry and protect our members' livelihood. Okay, who are their members? Building owners. So if you are unfamiliar with BOMA, I 
happy to riff on it on a <laughs> separately offline because they are the enemy of the common folk, you, the corporate tenant. So beware. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit though, right? Like Brian, when somebody's trying to remeasure your building by 20% and you're representing that company, what do you do? What do you tell them? How do you respond to the landlord? What's the strategy? The strategy is to make sure you have leverage and you're in your uh, properly approaching the transaction with other buildings, because most of the time, if, 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 if I'm negotiating the lease, you have protections within the lease to make sure that they cannot remeasure the lease during your term or during any of your renewal options, right? So you should be able to take it off the table if you're an existing building in the building through the previous lease that you're in. Now, if that's not the case, you need leverage in the marketplace because it is, um, it is a, a, it is the building was bought by the landlord, likely using the rent stream from your current lease. So even if they remeasured it, the value that they paid on it is derived from your, probably your current lease. If they paid on, on a larger square footage, shame on them. And you probably would be best to move out of the building, but it's likely derived by based on your current square footage. So all of that additional square footage is just appreciation and value for the landlord that you should be able to recapture back if you're an existing tenant in the building. So say that you signed a 10 year lease and all of the measurements have changed, right? It's gone from BOMA 2010 to 17 to 2021, right? And you're fighting your landlord. The landlord argument is, hey, look, if you were to go to any other building, it's going to be measured on 2021 standards. Why not just pay your fair share? Pay the um, for the amount of space that you have. Legacy standards around measurement don't exist if you relocate. What do you say to that? I say that we've been a tenant in your building. This has been a partnership that we've been that you've afforded, uh, that we've both benefited from. That the the lease was written under the old standard and it would be much more expensive for you to remeasure the building, find a new tenant, have downtime and release the space than it is to continue to operate under the current standard. What you, you bought the building at, which is you underwrote our rents at and all everything else is upside. So I think that you would have to just negotiate based on uh, the value that that lease creates under the current structure. I see Owen wanting to, to get in. Owen, do you have a tenant to replace um, Brian's tenant? Uh, and we're we're just going to evict Brian's tenant since he's not going to pay on the on the actual square footage of the space. I nope. never had to gross up or to change the standard of an existing deal. I, it is one of the things that absolutely drives me nuts. And you and landlords will concede on it because they own the building at the square footage that's in your lease. And if they don't, then you're moving out of the building anyway because they have another use for it. I, I find that in Los Angeles, if unless you're a large tenant, say you're a 10,000 square foot office user or a 7,000 square foot office user and your lease is coming up and the measurement standards for their entire building have changed and you're one of 150 tenants that are on the prior tenant or on the prior measurement standards, that it's very, very difficult to win. And that at a minimum, you're agreeing to the revised larger square footage and you're getting a rent credit to offset the increased amount, so it doesn't impact your actual rent. But it's very—I found it's very hard to fight that. So that may just be a market-to-market difference, at least for small, medium-sized tenants. I've never had that issue either on large-sized deals. Yeah, and so I—I uh, I would I agree. So we just did a transaction in Seattle where a tenant renewed, um, and we were fighting this to the last iteration of the letter of intent. 
where we agreed to terms. And in exchange, the 11th hour was just additional rent credit to offset the increased square footage and the cost that would be passed through to the tenant. So there are ways to mitigate this ridiculous um, notion that these buildings and these spaces grow when the spaces physically don't get a, bigger by a single square foot. But let's just face the fact that, and I'm sorry I'm getting fired up, but this is something I'm very passionate about. The hard truth that these areas were never calculated as part of the building when it was permitted. So they measure to the drip line now. So think how absurd that is. If a roof overhangs the, the curtain wall of a building, they measure out to the drip line. So you're paying on airspace, which is absolutely absurd. And nobody really understands this, but it's a reality. Um, and landlords all over the United States are hiring architects to remeasure their buildings to take advantage of these new standards. And, you know, as spaces turn over, for example, um, a tenant moves out, new tenant moves in, landlords are slipping in this newer, higher numbers of rentable square foot calculations, which obviously allow them to charge more rent and therefore increase the NOI, increase the value of the building. But let's not forget what these buildings perform based upon, which is the tenant. They're, they're the most important customer yet they're being treated like a doormat. And so the fact that BOMA is attempting to lay credence to this notion that it's fair and reasonable for people's space to grow when the building didn't grow and their, and their actual space didn't grow is an egregious and gross conflict of interest that this group that's comprised mostly of building owners and managers and the brokerage firms that serve them that they're allowed to dictate these rules that governing that govern building me measurement is just insane. Uh, sorry if I'm getting all fired up. I hope you're getting fired up with me because it's absolutely ludicrous and I can't stand it. But it's the world we live in, and that's why we have to exist as as the champion of the underdog, so to speak, to raise awareness to this, so our our clients know what's going on. And again, in some cases. It's okay to allow landlords to have this ridiculousness get passed through so long as we're getting an offset in some other ways to compensate for the increased square footage. But that's what's going on, and, and I'm done with my riff. Yeah, I mean, just the challenge with that, and this is the conversation I'm sure you're having, is that there's so many other costs buried in a lease, right? So a good broker looking at a lease sees the rent, but then you see, especially in the major cities, <clears throat> You know, the, the cost to operate in the taxes in the building could be 50, 75 percent of the rent. Um, and then landlords are getting fees. And if the other the other thing that's 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 angering me in about I love poking the hornet's nest here is the fees landlords are charging. They're getting very smart about adding additional fees upon fees. Sometimes leases come back to us and it feels like I'm, we're paying a fee upon a, a, a fee for a fee. And then they layer all these people into the deal. Right. So then the building is managed by a building manager and a building operator and this level and that level and this level. And then they want a management fee on top of all those people so they can pass through their whole staff and the whole company. And then they're getting a management fee on top of it. That's just pure. It's another revenue and income stream for the landlord. And then the building's getting bigger. Right. And and the majority of the brokers in the you know 70 percent of the revenues for brokerage companies are coming from landlords. So what are they doing? Now, this is market. This is market. This is this is market. This is good language. It's like, but someone has to start knocking on the door and change the way that people look at this. And um, it pokes the horn's nest big time here. It almost sounds like Brian wants to own office buildings now. <laughs> <laughs> if I was to own an office building, I, the first thing I would do is is completely change how I, I think I'd have all the tenants in the. It'd be like a a communal. 
the tenants would make all the decisions, not the owner. That I, I have a feeling that would be really bad for your uh, investment <laughs> pro forma there. That's but why I don't own buildings. You're you're a man of the people, Brian. That's why I don't own buildings. Uh, you you and Owen can team up and go on the campaign trail for tenants and their rights. Well, Great. I <laughs> I do want to. I, I should have caveated my my last rant, which is that there are you know these this landlord tenant relationship thing is never meant to be adversarial. We. Tenants need landlords as much as uh, landlords need tenants. And so the best relationships of those that my clients have with their landlords are those where people treat people fairly. We realize we're both for-profit companies for the most part. We, there are obviously nonprofits out there as well. But um, so we know people have to make money, but it just needs we need to have a level playing field. And that's all I'm trying to suggest is that too often in this industry, it's not level. Um, and um, a tenant is up against a 800 pound gorilla proverbially speaking um when negotiating with with people that are trying to you know max every dime out that at the expense of the tenant brian brought up a really good point talking about these management fees that's another area that is very misunderstood by companies even i would say that this is one of the areas that can regularly be misunderstood by sophisticated real estate people right a lot of these landlords try and charge a management fee but in addition to that, they want the ability to pass through additional expenses um, as operating expenses of the building. Uh, the most common structure for any property management type of activity is to take between 1% and 3% or sometimes 4% of the base rent um, that the tenants are paying. And that is meant to serve as the sole and exclusive payment for managing the property. That should include wages for property managers. It should include the office space for the property managers to sit in. But very often, they are passing through these costs um, in another way. And the counter argument to that is, hey, if you're under a base year lease, which perhaps John will talk about in a sec, um, as long as it's accounted for in the base year, then it doesn't really matter, um, which is not true at all because you're paying increases on an expense that shouldn't have been in the base year in the first place. Agreed. And and. Uh, not to leave, I'm going to park that for one second and just go back. Oh, and you made a good point. The, every landlord is not the same. There's certain landlords that are long-term holders that are truly partners that have helped tenants get through and figure out difficult situations. But I would tell you with the, with real estate becoming kind of the bell of the ball and a very attractive asset class, because what have rents done for the last 10 years? They've gone up in some places significantly. You've gotten all these new investment. They're effectively just investment companies that buy real estate, stabilize it, and sell it. And what are they doing? They're not your partner. They're not your long-term owner. They are just opportunistic finance people that structure leases, grow buildings, come up with ways to increase NOI, capitalize that, and make a lot of money. And those owners, and there's a number of them out there, and there's more today than there, than there ever was, um, are really difficult to negotiate with if you look at the long-term picture with a tenant and the relationship with an owner. They, they're not going to be your partner, um, unfortunately. Okay, Tucker, you kind of threw it to me. So let me, let me riff for a second on base year, um, which basically just says that the operating expenses in the first year of the lease, they're going to be paid by the landlord. And as they go up, as they increase in, in future years, that amount of the increase will be passed through to the tenant. Um, the question I have is so first of all if if they're allowed to pass through the increasing expenses 
then what's the purpose of a cost of living adjustment on the base rent? The increasing expenses are already being passed through. The cost of living adjustment isn't a cost of living adjustment, it's a guaranteed minimum appreciation. So let's start calling that a GMA. Uh, but, but here's my question to the group. Here's a, I'm confused by this. Uh, maybe you can help solve it. Uh, just got a proposal, triple net lease, triple net lease, where all the expenses are paid by the tenant in addition to the base rent. Um, and they've got a gross up provision. If the building's not 100% leased, they're going to gross up the expenses to 95% in a triple net lease. Explain to me that logic. What you all. the... <laughs> I think... Could you give us more details? Is, it, is yeah. it an office building? Is it an industrial building? Is it multi-tenant? What's the occupancy of the building currently? Is it they're paying their uh, pro rata share? Um, it's in, largely in... a single tenant technology company, single tenant facility and a triple net lease. And the proposal has a gross up provision. I've seen, and I've seen this in other leases. I've seen it in a multi-tenant office building. Uh, I fundamentally do not believe a triple net lease should be grossed up. The expenses are what the expenses are. Um, I've heard some counter arguments, something about services provided. For example, if you need to plow you know, snow away for give access to the building and the building's not fully occupied, they still have to do all of that plowing to even allow one tenant to get to the, I don't buy any of it. I don't think triple at least it should be grossed it's, up. This is this if if one of my clients is listening, she she would laugh because we we talk about this all the time. It's just a way for a landlord to carry vacant space for nothing, right? So a landlord in their pro forma needs needs to allocate cost to carry vacancy. What they're trying to do, this is another form of a, it's just a way to push more costs on the tenant. They're just reducing the allocation to be 100% of, of the occupied space so they don't have any cost to carrying the vacancy, right? So it's it, if you think about it that way, it's like, of course they're going to try that, but it's not reasonable. You, it just doesn't make any sense. You you own the building. You're the speculative investor. It's not my responsibility to carry your vacancy as the tenant. So you take the your your fair share of that cost and you carry it until you find another tenant to pay it, or you don't. But that's not my problem. Okay, so here here's a a counterpoint. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, right? I I agree. I would I'd be the first to strike that in you know the scenario that John is describing. Say that say that it, you're in a multi-tenant scenario and the cost of providing services to a single tenant on a per square foot basis is far greater than it is to provide it for a dozen tenants across a larger square footage. If you're grossing up the expenses as if that's the cost to manage the entire campus, but you're only paying for your proportionate share, is it possible that you would actually be paying less? because you would be participating in a economies of scale number for some of these shared expenses. Right. So you have to look at expenses based upon the, the, the building. So you have campus expenses across the entire campus. You have building expenses. And I think I can't think of a scenario in my head when that would make sense in a building. Uh, you're, the scenario you're playing across the campus, uh, it gets more complicated, but maybe you're right. Um, but I still, I, I'm not, I'm not seeing the math. But I think you need to break it down. You shouldn't have, and you need to break out retail tenants. You need to break out lab tenants if you're an office user. You need to really look at expenses. Landlords want to put everything in a big pool, make it very easy. Especially the way buildings have been trading. You've got, you know, an owner that sits around for two years, and you have a new owner, and you have a new finance team, and a new accounting team, 
and new property managers and all of a sudden all these costs just start getting lumped together and if you don't start peeling those back and have a very good lease on what costs are shared between the building what costs are shared between the campus or the or the project um and then and then you know what what costs could be just shared between the office tenants and the retail tenants if you don't have a lease that allows you to break those apart I guess there could be a scenario where that makes sense, Tucker, but I, I can't think of it. Okay, let me add this. How about we add to the lease a sentence that says, but in no event will landlord be allowed to charge operating expenses in excess of operating expenses actually incurred? I think we've got a solution, John. I think we're there. Now we're talking. That's the John Jarvis way to find solutions, to make things happen, to explain difficult to remember acronyms to those who don't know them. Okay, that concludes episode seven. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, the topics that we ended up covering, I think were a little bit more complicated than we thought. John Jarvis never got to share his acronyms. We're gonna have to stick around for episode eight to hear those, I suppose. Uh, thanks again, we'll see you in two weeks.